Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, I'll be talking to a spin glass expert and a climate physicist about this year's Nobel Prize for Physics, which has honoured three physicists working in those fields. We'll also meet a physics student from Nepal who is pursuing a PhD in medical physics in the U.S. This podcast is sponsored by Oxford Instruments Nanoscience. The company provides market-leading cryogenic systems that enable quantum technologies, new materials, and device development in the physical sciences. Ultra-cold temperatures are essential to achieve the low-noise environment necessary for the operation of both superconducting and spin qubits, and understanding materials at the quantum level. While driving for increased cooling and wiring capacity, they have designed the system with vibration levels in mind, designing the frame from the ground up to reduce the need for active vibration damping. Oxford Instruments has released the Proteox system, a new platform for quantum computing scale-up. Oxford Instruments will be playing a key role in providing the Proteox system for the first commercial quantum computer in the UK. Please visit nanoscience.oxtinst.com for more information. This week, the 2021 Nobel Prize for Physics was announced, with one half of the prize going to Giorgio Parisi for his work on complex physical systems and the other half shared by Sekiro Manabi and Klaus Hasselmann for their pioneering work on modeling the Earth's climate. To understand the scientific achievements of this year's laureates, I've spoken to two experts in their respective fields. And first up is the mathematical physicist Tim Palmer, who is Royal Society Research Professor in Weather and Climate Physics at the University of Oxford. Hi, Tim. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. So, Tim, how important is Manabe and Hasselman's Nobel Prize to the climate physics community? Oh, it's it's enormously uh, important. You know, for years, I think we have been struggling to kind of establish ourselves as a a bona fide part of of physics. You know, I think there was almost a folklore that Nobel Prizes would never go to meteorologists or climatologists. And and it was clearly a frustration, I think, to, to many of us in the field that that was the case. I mean, we have actually in chemistry, for example, we've had a Nobel Prize on the ozone hole, but nothing in physics. And uh, I think this really finally, you know, it, it's just come as a great relief, I think, that finally, you know, we were accepted as part of the mainstream physics community. And that climate change, you know, for all its sociological and economic implications, at heart, it's a problem in physics. How does the atmosphere respond? How does the climate system respond to our emissions of greenhouse gases? That's a problem in physics. And it's great to see that acknowledged rather by the committee. And in the 1960s, or starting in the 1960s, um, Manabe studied the effects of increasing carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere. How did he do this? And and how did this work influence future climate physicists? Manabe 
started to develop more and more sophisticated models of how um, the atmosphere would respond to our increasing emissions of carbon dioxide. Interestingly enough, by the way, because a lot of people think climate change, you know, has only been an issue for the last, I don't know, 20 or 30 years. But here was Manabi, you know, back in the 60s, contemplating how to solve this problem. And he started with relatively simple kind of one-dimensional problems where you just look at the, the, the purely the radiative effects of carbon dioxide, how it uh, traps uh, infrared energy from the surface of the earth. But he, he increasingly uh, looked at this problem in more and more complex models. And in particular, a really important study was, was looking at this in the context of full three-dimensional um, climate models, which were then only just starting to be developed. And these climate models were essentially offshoots of weather forecast models. Um, the basic idea is that you, you, you know, in, in a weather forecast, you start with what you hope is a very accurate description of today's weather, and then you let the model predict what will happen tomorrow or the day after. But in Manabi's model, you start with, you can start with the atmosphere completely at rest. And the idea is that the model itself will generate all the weather systems and the jet streams and all the, the monsoons and all the things that you associate with climate, sort of ab initio. They're, they're purely products of the um, equations of motion. And uh, Manabi and his colleague Joe Smagorinsky at Princeton developed some of these early models. And then Manabi had the, the idea, well, let's look at how doubling carbon dioxide changes the climate with these types of models. And the important point about this, something which a lot of climate, uh, let's call them climate skeptics, don't fully appreciate, is that these models do more than just predict the fact that the Earth will warm. They make certain other very specific uh, predictions. For example, Manabi's model predicted that the stratosphere will cool as a result of human-induced climate change. The models also predicted that the Arctic will be a particular hotspot for climate change. These things have come to pass, you know, as well as the overall levels of global warming, these particular, you know, detailed predictions have come to pass. So, yeah, so Manabi's work then spawned, you know, a massive industry, I would say, in the, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, even to the present day, of institutes, you know, developing their own three-dimensional climate models and more or less trying to replicate what, uh, what Manabi did. So his work is, is really hard to underestimate in terms of its importance. And then um, in the 1970s, uh, Tim, Klaus Hasselmann became interested in the role of random fluctuations in climate modeling. Why was this an important breakthrough in climate science? Well, well Klaus Hasselmann came at the problem perhaps in a slightly more theoretical way, um, but he was particularly interested in the the role of the ocean and how the ocean and the atmosphere interact. And he developed a model um, which is actually very simple conceptually, but has enormous ramifications, which is to say, well, let's start by imagining the atmosphere is just a, a simple stochastic system, just a system with, with random uh, fluctuations on, on all timescales. And then we'll impose an ocean on, on top of all that. So what will the ocean do? Well, the ocean will be completely unresponsive to very high frequency fluctuations, but it'll start to feel the lower frequency fluctuations. 
So the ocean acts as a kind of what we call a red noise filter. It, it just filters out all the high frequency, just keeps the, the low frequency red noise. And then in turn, the ocean feeds that back to the atmosphere and, em- and, and emphasizes its own red part, the low frequency part of the, of the spectrum. So I think importantly, what Klaus did was to, we're starting to develop uh, ways in which we can understand how um, climate variability, you know, maybe on timescales of, of years or decades, can actually emerge from a coupled ocean atmosphere system in which the atmosphere is really just acting as a, as a source of noise. Um, now, I have to say, I mean, this concept has really been very important for my own work because I've, you know, spent many years trying to develop climate models of the atmosphere and the oceans. We use noise as a kind of positive, constructive feature, if you like, for representing processes which we can't resolve precisely and we can't represent precisely. But, I mean, Klaus has done a lot of important work in different areas. And by the way, his Nobel Prize was not really only for this work. It's for, for a, an important area of science known as attribution. How do, we, how do we actually determine whether what we're seeing in the real world is due to climate change? But he also worked on this problem of, um, of how the oceans and atmosphere interact and the role of uh, stochasticity and noise in particular. And that, that has a, had a, a big impact on my own work. So, Tim, this award comes in the run-up to the COP26 climate talks in Glasgow. Do you think there's a political element in the Nobel Committee's decision this year? Well, I I don't know what the Nobel Committee uh, discusses and decides, but I would, well, I certainly like to think there wasn't any uh, political, such political input, and I'm kind of doubtful that there was. However, I do think that probably giving the prize is a reflection of the fact that basic climate change science is now pretty much universally accepted. There are really very, very few people, they're really completely on the outside, on the margins, I would say, of the science community who really deny that there is any uh, impact of our own human emissions on, on the climate. So I, think it, I don't think it's, a, it's anything to do with COP per se, but I, I think perhaps it is a, a recognition that this is now, you know, this is genuinely mainstream science. It's not speculative science. It's not uh, massively uncertain or imprecise, although there are aspects which are still uncertain. But the basic science is, is well established. It's science, of course. It's basic physics. It's the Navier-Stokes equations of fluid mechanics. It's the quantum mechanics of uh, how uh, photons are absorbed and scattered in the atmosphere. And it's the and it's the physics of thermodynamics of how you know heat and uh, and and entropy and all these things um, are manifest in the atmosphere and how they evolve. So climate science is a is a kind of mixing a melting pot, if you like, of these three great areas of classical fluid dynamics, of quantum mechanics, and of thermodynamics. And I think the committee has finally recognised that it, it for what it is, it's a main, it's part of mainstream physics. And the other half of the 2021 prize was given to Giorgio Parisi for his study of complex systems such as spin glasses. Is there a connection to the work of Manabi and Hasselman? Well, I, I think actually there is a uh, an indirect connection between Parisi's work and, 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 and Manabi and Hasselman's because the basic 
problem with trying to simulate climate is that it's actually much too complex a system to just simply code up on a computer. You know, it, it's not a matter of just brute force. You take this equation and you code it up. The problem with these equations, I mentioned the Navier-Stokes equation, the laws of thermodynamics and so on. When you write them in a mathematical form, these are what mathematicians would call infinite dimensional partial different, nonlinear partial differential equations. So infinite dimensional means you really need an infinite number of variables to represent all of the scales that are relevant. And that's impossible to do. So you have to find some way of truncating uh, your system to a finite dimensional system in order to run it on a computer. And that means you need ways of representing the scales that you cannot represent explicitly on the computer with simplified formulae. Now, you, 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 we know that the climate system, it's a tur- the fluid is turbulent. We see these sort of complex scale interactions between large scales and small scales, which suggest structures exist which are not simply representative by a kind of what would, you know, what in statistical mechanics would just be called a a big kind of statistical ensemble of subgrid processes. There are structure, there's mesoscale structure in these subgrid processes. And trying to represent these subgrid processes in, in an accurate way requires, I think, some detailed knowledge and understanding of the nonlinearity of of these infinite dimensional partial differential equations. And that then starts to relate to Parisi's work, because that's precisely about complex structures, complex um, dynamical systems, and how scale interactions occur in these complex systems. You know, Hasselman's work on stochasticity is, is kind of linked to that. But, but there is more, in fact. And I think in, in the future years, we'll actually find that Parisi's work will actually start to have uh, impact actually in the development of next generation climate models. Because this whole issue of scale interactions, for example, between clouds on the one hand, which are tiny in the global sense, and on the other hand, the jet streams, which have scales of tens of thousands of kilometers. This involves you know, complex scale interactions, which are difficult to, to represent and need, need a theoretical basis. So yeah, I think you know, in, a, in a strange way, I think there is more that connects Parisi's work with Manabi and Hasselmans that might that might seem apparent at first sight. Well, that's really interesting, Tim. Thanks, thanks for explaining that and uh, and putting the Nobel Prize in context this year. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Forty-eight of the two hundred and eighteen people who have won the Nobel Prize for Physics have been honored for work in condensed matter physics. Speaking as a former condensed matter physicist, I find this shockingly low when you consider the sheer volume of top-notch research done in this field over the past century. That's why I was very pleased that Giorgio Parisi has shared half of the 2021 prize. I'm joined down the line from the Free University of Berlin by Stephen Thompson, a physicist who studies spin glasses, and we're going to chat about Giorgio Parisi's many accomplishments. Hi, Stephen. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hi. Great to be here. So, Stephen, Giorgio Parisi shares half of this year's Nobel Prize for Physics, in part for his work on spin glasses. What exactly is a spin glass? 
So first, let's maybe start with the question of what is a glass, as in ordinary window glass. A lot of the phases of matter that we study in condensed matter physics are crystals, which are solids where the atoms arrange themselves in a very regular, ordered, periodic structure in space. Ordinary window glass is an exception to this, as it's a solid where the atoms are frozen in place kind of randomly without any periodic structure. Now, we call this an amorphous material. A spin glass is named by analogy to ordinary glass. Spin glasses are magnetic phases of matter that exist usually in disordered magnets at low temperatures, where the atoms themselves are arranged in a crystalline structure, but the magnetic field of each atom, or to be precise, its quantum spin, is stuck pointing in a random direction, frozen in time, just like atoms in ordinary glass. Now, this can be caused by some form of disorder, such as chemical impurities, or by a phenomenon called frustration, which is caused by the geometric arrangement of the atom. And Stephen, uh, shortly after the, the, the prize was announced, you were on Twitter, and you're obviously very happy that uh, someone who works on spin glasses has won the Nobel Prize this year. Um, and you also said that Parisi was very worthy of the prize. Why is that? I think anybody who works in the field of statistical mechanics or disorder systems will have heard of Parisi. He has had a hand in inventing some of the most powerful and important theoretical machinery that we have for understanding the behavior of spin glasses and other complex systems. And while I'm personally most familiar with his contributions to spin glass theory and statistical physics, his work has had far-reaching impact on a huge variety of other fields, including particle physics, quantum field theory, neural network theory, and various other mathematical methods. The depth and breadth of these achievements is remarkable, and it is fantastic to see all of this work recognized by the Nobel Committee. Yeah, one thing that really struck me is that um, Parisi, when he was being interviewed after uh, the announcement, that he mentioned that he was working on on COVID-19. So, you know, so it's amazing that uh, that's the mathematics and physics that he's developed can be put, uh, you know, to use studying a pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the applications of statistical mechanics are huge. They go far beyond studying just spin glasses or just magnetic systems, but they extend into the wider world around us, into all kinds of other problems, all kinds of other interesting situations. And that's why this prize is so, so interesting and so well-deserved. This work is not just a niche corner of science, but it has huge implications for, for all walks of life. And spin glasses, that's, uh, that's of great interest to you in, in your research. Did you come across the works of Parisi on a day-to-day on -day level when you're, you're solving today's problems in spin glasses? Yes, absolutely. I think uh, a lot of people in this community use the techniques that Parisi has developed all the time. Personally, I made quite a lot of use of it during my PhD, but even now, even Yesterday, for example, I looked to, to begin a new calculation on a new project, and the method that I'm looking to use is one that was developed by Parisi. So we're still using these techniques, we're still building on these techniques, and we're still learning new things about them. And I think for some, I mean, I, I wasn't surprised by, by the connection between Parisi and the two climate researchers who shared the other half of the prize. D does that make sense to you, you know, giving the prize to, to two people who worked on, on climate uh, modeling, and then somebody who worked on spin glasses. Both of these aspects of the prize are connected in that they're both ways of studying highly complex systems. So on the one hand, we have the Earth's climate, very, very large-scale uh, dynamics, very large-scale complexity. And then on the other hand, we have the spin glasses, which are very small-scale, 
fundamentally, there are a lot of connections. These are both about studying incredibly complex systems with a lot of different degrees of freedom, a lot of different variables, a lot of things that can change, and a lot of different possible outcomes. Parisi's work has involved figuring out ways to organize the mathematics of these systems in a way that allows us to actually meaningfully study these problems. It's very easy to get overwhelmed by this complexity, particularly when you start adding things like disorder and randomness, then a lot of our theoretical tools just completely fall to pieces. And finding a way that you can organize all of this madness in a way that makes sense and then use that to get some answers, to make some predictions and understand the world, that's kind of amazing. And that, I think, is where both aspects of the prize come together. They're both ways of doing this, of taking an immensely complex problem, figuring out a way to make something meaningful of it. And, and it's not every day that research into complexity is honored by the Nobel Committee. Do, do, do you think that, that young researchers will be encouraged by this to, to, to look at th- this field as an interesting you know, place to do research? What, what, what would you say to a, an early career researcher who is thinking about studying uh, materials such as spin glasses? What would your elevator pitch be? I would say that it is a field where there are a lot of open questions, even still to this day. I would say that spin glasses themselves are incredibly complex, intricate phases of matter that really push our theoretical techniques to their limit. By themselves, they are a really interesting problem as they combine aspects of many body physics, which is a tough challenge. The study of randomness and frustration, which is a tough challenge, and they often require investigating the non-equilibrium dynamics of complex systems, which is, again, a tough challenge. Put all of these together, (laughs) you have an incredibly difficult but incredibly rich series of of possibilities. The problems that we look at in spin glass theory, they're very difficult to solve, but they're so interesting. They can do so many different things. And because of this complexity, there are a lot of questions that are still unanswered. There's a lot of scope to design still more methods that could unveil uh, some of the fundamental properties of these systems. And then, of course, as I say, it doesn't just apply to magnetic systems or some kind of niche material that only exists in a lab somewhere. The techniques that are developed for spin glasses have a really wide application to all sorts of other other fields, uh, even in topics as diverse as neural network theory and machine learning, which are becoming really hot topics in the modern world at the moment. My own research involves connecting spin glasses with a phenomenon called many body localization and seeing whether we can use aspects of spin glasses to stabilize uh, robust memories for quantum computers. Again, that's another near, hopefully near future technological application. So really, there is so, so much still to be done in this field. I think it's fantastic that the Nobel Committee have recognized that. Hopefully that will bring some more visibility And hopefully that will bring even more people into what's already a very large and very vibrant community of researchers. Well, that's great, Stephen. Thanks so much for for bringing Spin Glasses um, and the work of uh, Giorgio Parisi uh, to life on the podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. One of this year's Nobel laureates, Sakuru Manabe, has spent most of his professional life working outside of his country of birth, having moved from Japan to the U.S. in 1958. This experience is not uncommon for Nobel Prize winners, and by my estimation, more than one quarter of physics laureates is, or was, an immigrant. 
Studying or working in a different country during the early stages of one's career can be a life-shaping experience. As Physics World's Tammy Freeman discovers when she meets someone who has traveled more than 10,000 kilometers from home to do a PhD. Suman Strester is a PhD candidate in medical physics at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Originally from Nepal, where he studied for bachelor's and master's degrees in physics at Tribhuvan University in Kathmandu. In 2015, Suman made the move from Nepal to the US to follow his interests in medical physics. I'm speaking with Suman today to find out more about this transition. Hi, Suman. Hello, Dr. Freeman. So what first sparked your interest in physics and science? My interest in physics and science uh, developed gradually rather than due to a single event. I was a good student during my school years, and it was a general expectation of everyone from family, faculty, society, literally everyone in Nepal, that top students will get into a science field. Uh, In Nepali education system, you tend to specialize as soon as you start high school. So if you're interested in getting into medical school, you tend to choose a biology track. And if you're interested in understanding like how things work, or if you're not at all interested in getting into medical school, you choose a physics track. I chose physics as I was more interested in understanding how things work. Um, And when you began your physics studies, was there a particular area you were most interested in going into? During my adolescence, I knew that I had interest in uh, physical sciences. Uh, Physics theories uh, and laws made sense to me. Clarity in terms of what specific field of physics that I wanted to pursue came in much, much later. Uh, I majored in physics during my undergrad with minor in chemistry and mathematics. And by that time, I had had several run-ins with uh, inadequacy of medical facilities in Nepal. Uh, Many of these involved uh, personal hardships and losses. As a physics undergrad, I was looking into opportunities uh, and searching for ways to make a difference in that area, but I had not identified a specific physics track. Okay, so you have an MSc in physics. What did that involve? This was around 2010, and only about 120 students were chosen annually to study MSc physics at Central Department of Physics, Tribune University. Students were selected based on an entrance test on a national level. So around 1,500 to 2,000 students competed for those 120 slots. You had to be above the 95th percentile to actually have a chance to study physics at that institution. I still remember that day and the joy that I felt when I made the merit list on my first attempt. Uh, That was a major milestone in my academic career because it meant uh, that I would train with the best professors and the brightest colleagues. In terms of training, infrastructure, and international exposure, this was the best my country, Nepal, could offer. So in those three years, I trained under the supervision of some of the most outstanding professors. It was a tough three years of intense study. But that experience laid a strong foundation on which all my follow-up achievements rest. In 2013, 
Uh, I graduated with a double specialization on advanced solid state physics and biomedical physics. What made you decide to then do a master's degree in medical physics? Medical physics training or biomedical physics training at the Central Department of Physics, Trivon University, was mostly theoretical, except for a few laboratory experiments involving radioactivity. Uh, there were no advanced medical physics degree options available. Also, uh, the practical and clinical training opportunities were almost non-existent for a pure physics student. This level of training was not enough to make a substantial impact on healthcare system. So after graduation, I had plans to pursue PhD in medical physics. I started preparing for GRE, TOEFL, and application. And during that time period, I actually worked as a physics lecturer at National Institute of Science and Technology, acquiring experience in teaching and advising undergraduate students. In 2015, I had a few master's and PhD admission offers and later accepted the fully funded offer from Louisiana State University. That offer was timely and life-changing. In, in April of 2015, actually, when the application decisions were rolling out, one of the most catastrophic earthquakes struck Nepal that took about 9,000 lives and injured 23,000 more. That was another time where a natural disaster put our healthcare system to the test. There was chaos everywhere. And very few hospitals were left standing, and those hospitals were overrun with patients. Uh, we did have some outstanding healthcare professionals, and some of the volunteers and students stepped up to the plate, but the inadequacy of medical facilities was clearly apparent. We lost some of the best and the brightest in that chaos, in that disaster. Uh, I was lucky enough to survive and in a position to make a difference. So with a strong determination to make this life count, I left my home and came to United States to pursue master's in medical physics. So what was it like moving to another country to study your master's? It was an adventure that I had dreamed of and worked towards for such a long time. I was excited, happy uh, about what the future held, and also sad that I was leaving my home and my home country. Interestingly, uh, it took about 52 hours for me to get from Kathmandu, Nepal to Louisiana. It involved four different flights and long layovers. First few weeks of the transition were very, it, it was tough. Uh, getting acclimated to the new place, new climate, it was very humid and hot. Uh, being responsible for literally everything and staying on top of all the paperwork was not easy. But after starting classes and getting to know the amazing people from staff, faculty to friends, I found a new home. Uh, amazingly compassionate people, outstanding scientists, and great friends. I, I, I could not have asked for a better environment. And it did not take long for LSU to become my home away from home. Excellent. And... During this time, you also had six months of clinical experience at Mary Bird Perkins Cancer Center in Louisiana. So how did you find that opportunity and what did it involve? During my master's in physics back home, I had multiple unsuccessful attempts at gaining clinical experience. I went to various diagnostic centers and hospitals in an attempt to kind of shadow 
medical professional. I did got interviewed by multiple people from administration to engineers to vice presidents of like hospital organizations, but nothing seemed to work. I consider myself extremely lucky that I joined the medical physics program at LSU because on top of outstanding didactic and research training, LSU also had a clinical rotation experience for about six months directly embedded in their training. So you actually get a second office in a clinic where you spend all of your time rotating from one service to another. The level of immersion and training was just just outstanding. We trained at the Maribel Perkins Center at Baton Rouge. It's multiple satellite facilities as well as uh, Pennington Biomedical Center. And I'm forever grateful for the level of extensive clinical training that I received back then. It helped bolster my understanding of medical physics and also kind of integrated me into the clinical environment and hospital culture. I could not have asked for a better didactic, clinical and research training. Great. So now you're studying your PhD at MD Anderson. Um, What does your PhD project involve? Uh, After graduation from LSU, I did join MD Anderson for my doctoral research uh, in 2018. So I currently work in the late effects research laboratory led by Professor Dr. Rebecca Howell. And primary focus of our research group is radiation therapy-related late effects, quantifying the relationship between radiation dose to specific organs and late effects of uh, these treatments in childhood cancer survivors. Now, I personally focus on developing models to predict the risk of radiation therapy-related late cardiovascular disease. Our goal is to prospectively optimize contemporary radiation therapy and reduce the risk of late cardiovascular disease. We've actually made significant progress over the past few years. We developed and validated the city anatomy-based scalable cardiac model that has substructures. And this is the first time that we have that for late effects research. We also have successfully reconstructed doses for about 15,000 survivors uh, in the Childhood Cancer Survivor Cohort and St. Jude Lifetime Cohort. These survivors receive radiation therapy during their course of treatment. And we're currently evaluating the relationship between cardiac substructure radiation dose and risk of late cardiac toxicity. Our current focus is on developing and validating risk score algorithms to predict the risk of CVDs or cardiovascular disease. And I I anticipate uh, completing my doctoral studies by next year. So, I mean, basically, you're you're working to develop ways to make radiotherapy safer, uh, particularly for children who, you know, they've got their whole life ahead and you want to sort of minimise any long-term impacts from the radiation. Yeah. And I gather you already have a postdoctoral position lined up. Um, What's that project involve? My postdoctoral work will involve the clinical implementation of my PhD work. We actually have plans to integrate the risk prediction models directly into currently existing treatment planning systems and establish their use via in silico studies of contemporary patients. And integrating these models into treatment planning systems through uh, coding or scripting will make them readily available. And we plan to publish these scripts so that any center around the globe can implement and utilize these tools. So the idea here 
is to develop the necessary clinical translation tools needed for a prospective clinical trial to reduce uh, CVDs or cardiovascular disease in childhood and uh, adolescent uh, cancer survivors. For a newly diagnosed child, validated risk prediction models can be applied to prospectively optimize their radiotherapy plans and personalize uh, their risk counseling based on treatment exposure and acquired modifiable risk factors. Great. And looking further into the future, do you plan to stay in the area of medical physics? Uh, yes, of course. My goal is to become an independent researcher, a licensed medical physicist, and on the long run, a tenured professor. I plan to have my own research lab, my own research students, graduate students in the future. Uh, in addition to that, and in addition to my current research, I'm also interested in improving healthcare in lower and middle income countries. So later in my career, I intend to establish research centers in Nepal with international collaboration so that deserving candidates could get the necessary training. I'm well aware of problems that one might face while attempting to institutionalize research in a developing country like Nepal. But I believe with excellent university education, perseverance, and collaboration with well-resourced health centers, I will be successful in building a platform for the next generation. Brilliant. Well, good luck with everything in the future. And, and for now, do you have any advice for current undergraduates in physics? I'm an average student from a public school in Nepal who had big dreams. Now I'm training with outstanding scientists at MD Anderson and uh, CCSS, Childhood Cancer Survivor Study researchers, and I'm currently working towards my PhD. It's been a long journey with lots and lots of ups and downs, failures and successes. I actually have even bigger dreams, bigger goals, and there's a long way to go. I'm proud of where I am and hopeful towards what future holds. And my, my message or my advice for current students uh, is that if it's possible for me, it should be possible for you as well. Uh, this was my dream. Yours is likely different. But if you persist and work towards a goal diligently, your dreams are likely going to come true. Uh, it won't be easy. It won't be simple. But it's going to be worth it. And mainly because of your hard work and amazing mentors out there. So. One thing that I would like to tell the undergraduates is that there are many hyper-competent and successful people in the world, and one of the greatest pleasure in their life is to find people who are also hyper-competent and open doors for them as rapidly as possible. They absolutely love that. And these mentors find promising young people, provide opportunities after opportunities after opportunities. Your only job is to work hard and reach out to these people. My, my journey or my career is filled with so many of these amazing mentors, and my successes thus far would not have been possible without these people. And the other tip would be to work on your communication skills. There is almost nothing more powerful than someone who is very articulate and can speak and think. I'm still working on that, and I will try and improve that over the next few years and throughout my life. Highest faculty of human being is articulated speech. And if you're good at it, it will take you places.
Thanks very much for joining us today, Simon. Thank you, Dr. Friedman. Thank you very much. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Suman Shrestha, Tammy Freeman, Stephen Thompson, Tim Palmer, and our producer Callum Jelf. And a special thank you to Oxford Instruments Nanoscience for their generous support. To learn more about their low-temperature systems for quantum computing applications, please visit nanoscience.oxtinst.com. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do have a listen to the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. This month, host Andrew Glester hears from scientists and software engineers at the vanguard of developing free and open-source software for physics research. You can find all the Stories podcasts on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast app. Physics World.